0: story etc
1: I'm going to stand in front of you be one of these statistics that we retweet and you're going to have a good time with me because that's possible just because I have mental health issues doesn't mean that's all I am
0: That was Laura Lex from an interview coming up later in our programme. This is Story Etc. I'm Eleanor Rushton. Health is a broad term, bringing with it a host of meanings, associations and judgments. People's understanding of health is as diverse as their experience of it and very often we are confronted by the limitations of this experience, our own or other people's. Conversations about illness, Mental health and disability broaden understanding and yet depictions in mainstream storytelling are frequently simplistic or simply not there. We will be discussing all sorts of questions relating to health and storytelling, thinking about the process of making those stories and of getting them heard. We will also be including some excerpts from our first live panel event held at King's Place in London. The panel, Health and Storytelling, featured comedian Sophie Hagen, actor, comedian, and activist Georgie Morrell, playwright and screenwriter Matilda Ebini, and writer and broadcaster Rosie Fletcher. I'm here with Jenny Redmond. Hello. And we're talking about health.
2: We are talking about health.
0: This has been a long time I come coming. It has, and it is a, oh, it's a big subject. It's a really big subject. I think, as always,
2: with big subjects that we tackle, I think it's important to include a caveat that this isn't definitive. We're not presenting health in its entirety, in its depiction in fiction. God, no, yeah. We're picking out bits that have appeared to us as and when they come and bits that we find interesting. And um, there might be parts of this episode that are slightly more focused on physical and slightly more focused on mental health, as, as we see as broad definitions. Yeah. Um, but there's so much more to uncover and I think it's definitely something that we want to return to. So we're not saying, hey guys, health. Yeah. Here is your guide to health in fiction.
0: It's a an exploration. Absolutely. So the panel we had this month was a first for us and I thought it was a really exciting way of tackling this kind of giant topic because it meant that we could You know, invite people who know more than us about loads of stuff, ask them some questions, then let them be clever and funny and tell us things.
3: I'm registered disabled, so if I talk about it in terms of the disability route, there is a Underrepresentation of disability in the media, um, I say across all forms. If I was to, I won't, don't don't do this, but if I was to ask you, mm-hmm. name uh, other disabled comedians, actors, newsreaders, presenters, I think we'd all fall. Sh- I can think of three, and most of them are here. So underrepresented, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's because there is a fear surrounding it through here disability, and it is. People are scared that if you were to be disabled, that is your life, it is over. You are lesser a person. And I think we need more stories that are a positive uh, take on disability. Actually, you're the same as anybody else. Actually, you have more to give because you have a whole other way of looking at the world. Particularly me, being visually impaired. (laughs) Quite a unique perspective. I think that's something that we should nurture because the more we do that, knowledge is power, pretty much. So the more that people hear those stories, there's less of a fear around disability and they're like, oh, right, so, you know, because disability, you know, anyone can be disabled. It can affect anyone. You're not immune. So hiding away from it is no good. Get involved. Get stuck in.
4: i would sort of similar uh, with Georgie's views that sort of representation at the minute is piss poor. (laughs) Like... um, The stories, we're, we're very... I don't know, I feel like the media likes to play down the the true effects story has on us, like as in terms of like forming our identities, how we see ourselves, how the world sees us and how we interpret things and when, I think because disability is such a broad term, it is one word trying to encapsulate if not thousands of different things and people and characteristics that um, I think a lot of that fear comes just from ignorance because you couldn't know everything about disability. You couldn't know everything about all conditions. So we've sort of decided to lean on like a crutch on stereotypes and um, just sort of use these common tropes of telling stories about people with disabilities that um, are usually offensive and usually so sort of cardboard cut out that yeah of course when you see those representations of course you wouldn't want to be disabled because it's it looks like it sucks Um, as opposed to disability is so nuanced and so complex and we should be having those conversations about it we should be having real uh, seeing such variety of stories because like you say disability can Can happen to anyone at any point in your life and that's not meant to scare you it's just the fact that like life isn't over when you get when you acquire or if you're born with a disability Catherine Jakeways is a writer actor
0: and comedian working with Lee Ridley she writes the Radio 4 sitcom Ability Jenny Redmond went to speak to her about changing perceptions and the importance of collaboration
5: Okay, so my name is Catherine Jakeways and I have historically always thought of myself as an actor and a writer, although I think in the last few years more accurately I'm a writer. I do a lot more writing than acting now. So Ability is um, a show that is on Radio 4, which we've so far done one series of and it was uh, it's co-written by me and Lee Ridley, who is also known as Lost Voice Guy, who's um, a stand-up, he's from Newcastle, he's a stand-up comedian who has cerebral palsy and can't speak. Um, and he's come to prominence quite a lot in the last year, to my great delight and amusement, <laughs> because he won Britain's Got Talent uh, recently, which was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. Um, but before all of that, before Simon Cowell was involved in Lee's life, um, <laughs> before his best mates with Amanda Holden, uh, he was friends with me before Amanda came along. Um, and he and I, uh, we'd been put together as, uh, as writers. Basically, Lee won the BBC New Talent Award, I think that's what it's called, New Comedy Awards, something like that, about three or four years ago um, as a stand-up. And as part of his prize, it was a live competition, so he had gone through some heats and I think the live I think the final is on Radio 2 or something. Um, and as part of his prize of winning that, uh, he was given the opportunity to develop a, a sitcom for Radio 4 and I think that happens every year and sometimes people do go on to make something and sometimes they, and not always. So there was no guarantee that it was going to get broadcast or that it was going to get beyond the sort of initial discussion stage. On email, when you're having a conversation with him, which is mainly the way we do it, it's absolutely like you were having a conversation with anybody. And he's very funny and he's, you know, very articulate. In real life, he can't speak. So he's never been able to speak. So have you seen have you seen him on Britain's World Talent? So he's, um, yeah, so he talks, whatever he wants to say, he types it into an iPad and that computer says it out loud for him. So it's sort of Stephen Hawking type voice that he has. Um, And so it's, yeah, it's obviously has its own challenges working with him. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I say, in many ways, in terms of email conversations that we have, it makes absolutely no difference. The first time I met him, you're so desperate to not sort of be doing the wrong thing and you're sort of desperately trying to um, not say anything stupid or say anything that's offensive. And quite early on in our relationship, I... May have even been that first day, I think I said to him that we're going to have to have the sort of relationship where I can ask you stupid questions. And because that's sort of what the how we're going to make the show, really, is that we have to be aware that these are the sort of I'm going to be the asking the sort of questions that an audience would want to know about him, about mm. you. And he and he's very open to that. I mean, he by that time had done two or three Edinburgh shows Um all of which were based on the stupid questions that people ask him all the time. So he's very good at acknowledging that and he knows them better than anybody. He's the first to sort of tell you what the stupid things are that people think about his situation. Um, so we did a, uh, with Jane's help, the three of us, it was very much the sort of three of us together, put together a proposal for how we could do a show about Lee. Um, the character... Of Matt, who is the character who is in Lee's situation in the in the sitcom, we were sort of quite clear that he wasn't going to be Lee. He, he's got sort of different personality to Lee, and he's ten years younger. He's living with his he's just left home and he's living with a friend. is the setup for the sitcom, and he's got this carer, who it's called Bob, who's completely hopeless and has never been a carer before. And um, he's played by Alan Mustafa, who's in People Just Do Nothing. He's great. Um, and actually they are a really good double out of the two of them because obviously Lee, when Lee's playing Matt, his voice is quite slow and it's very measured and it's very... He has this sort of um, computer voice whereas um, Alan is very naturalistic and um, sort of undercuts it quite nicely because otherwise it would have been... If, if Otherwise we were a bit worried about the fact that the entire half hour would be massively slowed down by the fact that mm. a lot of it is this voice. And one of the big things that we... Um, Came up with when we were developing how we could make ability work was that um, we have that we have the character of Matt has an inner voice who um, who we hear, which I think was crucial. And actually, as soon as we came up with the idea of that, we were we were we sort of thought we were onto a winner because it does make a big difference. Because if it was just when Matt, the character, is talking to somebody, if it was just him and that character. It, well, for, for technical reasons, it would be very slow because you have to have his voice at the speed that it's at. Um, but also, it's just really nice to hear what he's thinking. And actually, we discussed, I've forgotten about this until just this second, actually. But, uh, but in the very early days of it, we were saying, because I think I remember saying to Lee, what what in your head? I mean, obviously, it's, it's sort of fascinating. Isn't it? And again, this is a classic stupid question that it doesn't even cross your mind until you're actually having a conversation with somebody like that who can't speak. And what I remember, remember saying to him, yeah, it's, like, it's sort of like when you say, when you dream. Mm. What language do you dream Yeah, in? what language do you dream in? So I remember asking him whether in his head his voice had a Geordie accent. And, and of course it does, because he was born in Newcastle, his whole family are Geordie. And so in his head, he has a Geordie accent. In his head, he's, you know, he, his voice sounds the way any of our voices sound in our head. So I sort of became a bit fascinated about how that, how that affects him and of course, he's used to it. He's never known anything different. But it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, as an outsider to just think, God, so he, while we're having this conversation, his inner monologue is going, oh, you idiot, of course, I, you know, presumably. Um, and we discussed the fact that we could, you know, maybe in his head, who is he? Is he, is he James Bond? Is it, you know, At one stage, we were thinking maybe we should get Sean Connery to do the inner voice or we could, you know, we, you could get anybody because in his head, he, he could be anybody, couldn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, But then we settled on the fact that actually the ideal thing is that in his head he's a normal Geordie 27-year-old. So that's who plays the inner voice. And actually it works really well, I think, and it's quite nice because you can get you know, in the same way that you do in Peep Show, you get their ca- the characters sort of speaking their thoughts, which is always quite a good sitcom. I was going to as say, it's it, really
2: good for characters. Yeah. Getting it, to know them a bit more.
5: Exactly. Or, you know, it allows the listener just... to get to know them, but it's and it's good for jokes, and it's to sort of undercut. As a, there's an obvious joke often where he says one thing and then he sort of always sort of undercuts that. So that's, for, from a comedy point of view, it's really helpful. But actually also particularly for, for this project, it was sort of vital, I think. And as soon as we came across that, that was... That was a big sort of factor in our thinking, oh yeah, actually this might work. But yeah, so we were quite keen from the start that it shouldn't be this poor, um, hard done by disabled character who is A, only interesting because he's disabled and B, surrounded by loads of really interesting characters who are all funny and getting all the funny lines and trying to exploit him we were very keen that actually he should be just as funny as everybody else if not more so and b he should be equally up for exploiting his situation and his um
2: and similarly the other characters as well so yeah he gets his
5: own back on bob oh he does yeah yeah they should absolutely be equal yeah. and we should not be thinking well partly because you don't want to be thinking oh i'm feeling a bit uncomfortable that mm-hmm. this guy is slightly exploiting this poor disabled man which would absolutely have killed all the comedy and all the sort of reality of any of it, it should be absolutely that he he should get the upper hand the, an equal number of times and he should be just as up for, I mean the, the pilot episode that we did was um, where they both, they're drug dealing basically, the two of them are drug dealing from um, Matt's flat with the point being, and I think, I haven't listened to it for a long time, but I think if I remember rightly that it was Matt's idea originally that he wanted to do it. Um, He wanted to have a go at the drug dealing because, as he says, no one would ever suspect the disabled guy, and so he would get away with it. Um, But then, of course, he has difficulty physically doing it because the character, like Lee, doesn't have full use of his hands and can't measure stuff out. And so, you know, there's comedy to be had with him being covered in drugs and his mum and dad turning up.
2: How did you feel writing somebody else's, writing jokes about somebody else's health?
5: Well, it would have been a very different situation if I'd been writing it on my own. Mm. Um, I mean, I never would have been writing a character like that on my own because it wouldn't have been a character that I wouldn't necessarily have thought or that I would have had any experience insight, of yeah. or insight into. So it's been very collaborative. Uh, the pilot, I'm trying to remember how much, how we did it. I mean, what we've done for all of them, and this is what we're doing for the second series as well, is Lee and I, along with Jane, who's the producer, have had a, a long discussion which is sort of always ongoing about storylines that we might include and then we sort of break it down into each ep- each series has been four episodes so the four storylines that we like best and, and how the B plots could come could sort of work into that so it's n- no different from how I would do if I was doing it on my own um sorry I am going to answer the question that you were asking before but I'm just sort of getting to it um and then we do and then he takes two episodes and I take two episodes and we do the um, episode breakdowns individually. So you do sort of scene by, uh, scene by scene, which we then swap over. But then at that stage, he is hugely involved in the episodes that I write because I ask him questions all the time. So I'm constantly sending him emails stu- with stupid questions. I'm writing an episode at the moment for the second series um, about the process of applying for the disability allowance. Which is something that I knew absolutely nothing about, mm-hmm. and it, when you start researching it, it's actually quite horrifying the hoops that people are made to jump through in order to get this pittance that they're that they're living off. Um, and I'd sort of done some preliminary research into it and read some websites and read some message boards and stuff, and then I sent Lee a long list of questions about, you know, how this has affected him before, how, you know, is it feasible that this could be something that Matt hasn't experienced because obviously as a you've sort of got half an eye on the story of it and it would be much it's much more interesting for the story if this is a new thing to match this is the first time he's had this um assessment in a long time and Lisa actually yes he had an assessment quite recently for his allowance and he hadn't had one previously since he was a child so it's quite realistic when you're writing any character who has very different experiences from yours obviously it's really important to speak to people who do have those situations um I did a um, a job last year where I was writing a one of the main characters with a 19-year-old black kid and who lived on a estate and I wanted to make sure that I was not doing the middle-class white thing of going, oh, I think this is how they speak and this will be... Oh, I think they say nang, don't they, those people? Which is obviously hideous. So I you know, did quite a lot of talking to, to kids and people and finding out whether the experiences were, were right and getting people to sort of help with the dialogue of it and stuff. And I think it's only it's a sort of similar situation to that, that you need to sort of say, well, how would you feel about this? Or Mm. if somebody put you in this situation, would that be something you would have had experience of before or, you know, how familiar are you with that kind of um, conversation? What you don't want to do is, I mean, it's almost sort of cultural appropriation, isn't it? You don't want to go, oh, this, you know, when it's a health issue, you're very aware that you don't want to be patronising or saying, oh, aren't they wonderful, these people? And they're managing to, you know, keep going despite... Because actually Lee is, you know, keeping going as well as any of us, much better than most of us now. It's just one britain has got talent. (laughs) He's loaded. (laughs) Uh, Drinks are on Lee. But but yes, you're right. You're also aware that you're sort of representing people's experiences where there will be listeners who are very familiar with this, who have similar health um condition or who have relatives who do and have hugely more experience of that than I would. Yeah. But of course because I'm writing it with Lee then I think it's I think it's okay. Mm. And he absolutely has an eye on that all the time and even right up until the st- when we're in the studio when we're recording. Um and he plays the character of um of Matt in the show so he's quite often in the studio and I'm in the Control room, and there were loads of there were numerous times where I would sort of go into the studio and go, "Hang on a minute, Lee, is this actually? Now I'm hearing it out loud. Is this actually what you would say in this situation, or somebody in in Matt's position would say in this situation?" And so it's very important that he sort of has the final say on any of that. Um, and actually, there's a whole episode which I don't think Lee had realised was particularly. Maybe I'm wrong, but I seem to remember him not realising how funny it was. That, so his voice, the voice that Lee uses, is a sort of RP male voice. But on his software, on his iPad, you can change it so that he could have any voice that he wanted, pretty much. I mean, they're all computerised, so they all talk like that, and they're all like Siri or like a. Mm. Um, Set up. Set up exactly. So they can't get around that, but what you can change is there are different accents and you can make them younger and you can make them older and you can make them American or you can give them with a French accent. So we had a whole episode where it was, he was getting some fun out of the fact that he could change his voice to be a woman's voice and he could do a sort of sex line, he does a sex line as a woman over The phone and it was brilliant. And he sent me a link to his software, and I spent the whole day really mucking about with it. And go listen to this because there's like some of them are like deliberate comedy voices, like there's a cowboy voice, and there's a you know, queen you can people. do the queen, yeah, you can yeah. do the queen, and um, we can do children, which is actually slightly sinister. Um, so stuff like that that he hadn't really, I mean, probably 20 years ago, he when it was a novelty to him he would have gone oh this is quite funny but he's so over it whereas for me it was like oh my god you can feel like a cowboy it's so exciting so stuff you know stuff that he takes for granted as being part of his everyday life um, I found yeah. I found fascinating but yes I think the main thing really was just how open it is possible to be with with him and of course it makes me embarrassed to think that I didn't think this would be the case because he's a lovely funny warm you know, 36-year-old Geordie guy. So, of course, you can pretty much say anything you like to him, um, as you can with anybody. But, And that's been the joy of it, I think, really.
2: And, you, and um, what you were saying earlier about box checking. Yeah. So, obviously, Ability came about because of um, Lee winning an award. Right? Yeah. In terms of opening up the boxes that we can tick, Yeah. what do you think we need to be doing to get
5: more... That's a good question. Well, I think, I think to be fair to commissioners and to be fair, which I'm not often, mm. <laughs> um, but my experience of it is that people are, the good guys are are trying very hard to to bring people up through the ranks and to um, and to get more diversity and to get more, um, you know, people with additional needs represented. Um, and I think it's going to take time before uh, people feel confident to come forward. I mean, there's been a lot of decades where white middle-class men have been able to come forward and go, actually, I'd quite like to have a go at comedy. Um, it's going to take a long time before there are equal numbers of women and, uh, you know, uh, BAME writers and people who are going to come forward and feel that they're, you know, it's that thing of if you can't see it, you don't want to Doesn't be it. You don't know you can be it. Is that right? I'm sure there's a more pithy way of saying that, but whatever that phrase is. Um, and yes, I'm very conscious of trying to speak to um, young female writers, and um, I've got lots of friends. It? Um, there's a scheme for BAME writers being, written in co- being run in comedy at the moment to get more people through all the time. And I think people are trying, and it's something that we're all very conscious of, needing to um, encourage, needing to... Um, insist upon actually but (laughs) yeah the danger is then that suddenly they become more front and centre and when something breaks through like ability hopefully has slightly or when it's a you know um, a black sketch show or you know a black performer comes through then the danger is and everybody's aware of this that people might just go oh yeah they really just have that commission because they're black or because they're disabled or Um, because they're a woman and it's yeah that's that's a necessary danger I think and I think we just have to suck up the fact that people are going to say that but we still have to represent those stories and those and those individuals and those communities
0: If you haven't listened to Ability on Radio 4 yet then definitely definitely try to catch it Catherine can also be found on Twitter at Catherine Jake.
4: Uh, when I first started like writing, I used to think that I wasn't an activist because I wasn't on the picket lines or protests or at the marches and things like that. Um, and a friend sort of put the idea that how about if your work is your activism and I was like, wait, what does what does that mean? I'm not writing explicitly about disability. I write characters who happen to have a disability but they are not defined by their disability. Um, and she was just like, well, by the very nature of you being disabled and writing, because most disabled people aren't even allowed to pursue things that they're passionate about, you're, that's a way of your activism. Um, and I think it was like, sort of like realizing that um as realizing like sort of managing parts of my condition and things that I have energy to do because if I was to attend sort of like those you know the women's march or the uh, even university fees marches like one my back my wheelchair the battery of my wheelchair wouldn't even last the march but then also I'd be so fatigued I probably wouldn't be writing so like being really conscious about sort of the battles I choose to pick and that my my form of activism is okay like that's not any more or less valid than people who are um sort of picketing and petitioning and you know in the houses of common or what have you um that 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 is another way of like putting you know sticking two fingers to the establishment but um yeah, I just, yeah, activism is weird because like you say, you don't wanna feel, sometimes put that, people put that onus on you that because you're this, you have all these characteristics, you're therefore the spokesperson for that community and that's just really unrealistic and not possible because you are just one person. Um, and as, as lovely as we like to think one person can change everything, we, we, we actually need a wave, we need a sea of people, just sort of where I think in a lot of activism comes allies that they, sometimes other people have to do the work, not, not the people who are oppressed or, you know, the minority. As we
0: consider attitudes to health and healthcare in 2018, it's interesting to turn to the past. John Milton's sonnet, On His Blindness, expresses the poet's fears regarding his own sight loss. He considers how it will impact his identity as a writer.
6: When I consider how my light is spent Ere half my days in this dark world and wide, And that one talent, which is death to hide, Lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent, To serve therewith my Maker, and present my true account, Lest he returning chide, Doth God exact day labor, light denied, i fondly ask but patience to prevent that murmur soon replies god doth not need either man's work or his own gifts who best bear his mild yoke they serve him best his state is kingly thousands at his bidding speed and post o'er land and ocean without rest they also serve who only stand and wait.
0: On His Blindness was written by John Milton and performed by Philip Nightingale. It was directed by Eleanor Rushton. So one thing that struck me, you know, thinking about the physical um, aspect of the large topic of health is... We, and in the panel discussion, we talked about living with disability
2: mm-hmm.
0: of various kinds. So we talked about um, physical disabilities, chronic illness, or like Accessibility. Accessibility, exactly. And there is also, obviously, in health, the issue of, of illness. And they do intersect, obviously. Illnesses can cause accessibility issues. They can cause disability. But... It's a, it's a Venn diagram, isn't it? And it's the idea of physical health is so, oh, it's so varied.
2: Mm-hmm. I had a couple of thoughts thinking about physical health. So one of which I've been thinking of for a while and it was my most hated depiction of ill physical health in a novel and the possibility of switching it around. So I'm thinking about <laughs> Little Women hmm And I am thinking Bloody about... Bloody Beth. Bloody Beth. Bloody Beth. So what I'm thinking about is the pure opportunity, the pure um, short-sightedness of a writer who doesn't develop a character who has a chronic or fatal illness mm. and how much more interesting that illness would have been if it had been Joe, mm. And given her character, her desires um her ambition in life to give her a chronic illness that didn't affect her storyline she carried on she still lived the same life she still had the same ending but to see her character develop through that frustration how she would deal and how much that would infuriate her to be limited in such a manner and to see her work around it i would have much rather read than than basically through every adaptation watching beth die
0: which is pretty much all we do Mm yeah no agreed there's also in a similar vein did you ever read what katie did yes i mean yeah where she gets yeah Yeah. but like they get ill and they either have been saintly from the beginning Mm -hmm. as in with helen burns and beth or like katie they get ill and then have a personality transplant
5: Mm -hmm.
0: what I think something I've been interested in, I was especially interested talking um, to our panellists, was I think a lot of depictions of physical illness in stories are, I'm doing big inverted commas here, but things like journeys through cancer, battles with things and that kind of stuff. And I think what I've been thinking about more and more are ailments, either illnesses or, you know, or disabilities or ho- however we're framing it, but where Endless ones. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That isn't framed within a feature film length, diagnosis battle, cure or not cure that is in the everyday details of people's lives that they have to and that they learn to negotiate Mm -hmm. and I think that's so interesting and I can't wait to see more more and more works that that do take that on although one thing that has certainly come up is that if we don't make sure that the voices of writers and storytellers who actually are living those things get heard we will never know what those details are because how could you know unless you've noted it yourself?
2: One of the things that I um, really loved about the panel discussion that we had was about uh, one of the particulars that was brought up was, was me before you, Mm. the film. Um, And we haven't really covered so far. And I really hope we get a chance to, to talk about the um, sort of economic access, class access to health provision, mental health, access, all that kind of stuff and what impact that makes on somebody's life Um, obviously there's a lot of points during that film where a lot of people have disagreed with its depiction of um, disability and opportunity within that Uh, and I don't think it's fair that that is the blockbuster that we see Mm. and most people probably don't agree that it is Um, but it's how we take that forward and and again as I said it's perspectives it's broadening it out it's it's not just placing the money on what we know is going to be the emotionally manipulative weeper film and actually giving some more weight behind um, more realistic and more accurate and more fulfilling and more representative depictions of physical health, ailments.
0: We're always interested in talking about different ways to tell stories. Kathy Leamy is a medical cartoonist who uses her work as a tool to talk about health. I gave her a call to talk about public health communication in the US and the power of cartooning.
7: My name is Kathy Leamy and I'm a medical cartoonist. I draw comics, write and draw comics about healthcare and medicine and the American healthcare industry and anything clinical and to do with the body. I've been drawing comics pretty much my entire life. Um, it started with reading the Beano as a kid when I lived in England and just was inspired by the characters, started drawing cartoons and comic strips, just kept doing it forever, got to a point where Expressing myself through comics was just a natural thing, and i just get things in my head, and that's the way they came out. Um, and then back in about 2005, I needed a new job. I was working as a web developer, and there happened to be an opening at the hospital where my mother worked. And I went to work as a web developer in a hospital for an electronic medical record system. I spent a lot of time talking with the doctors and nurses and the staff and absorbing all of this clinical knowledge. I was having to program a lot of the logic for when's it time to get a mammogram, when's it time to get your eyes tested if you have diabetes, things like that. And so where does all the knowledge in my head come out? It comes out into cartoons. So I just kind of started incorporating all of this clinical knowledge into my comics and it was fun, but it was on my own. But then I think it was 2012, I learned about the, it was the second annual Comics and Medicine Conference and the, the first one had been in London. I learned about it after the fact, wouldn't have been able to go, but this next one was in Chicago and it just felt like, oh, this is made for me. And I went and yes, it just lit my head on fire. It really felt like, oh, this is, this is where I want to be in the world. This is where I need to be in the world. And so since then, I've just been honestly really focused on the medical comics aspect. So in terms of, obviously, um, so I've, the comics of yours
0: you've drawn, I've seen, a lot of it is to do with tapping into people's fears about health and the kind of common anxieties and things like that, as well as transmitting you know, really practical, useful information about this is why you need to do this, or this is why this is important. Do you remember any of the sort of early medical comics that you drew? Or what, what sort of issues you were drawn to initially?
7: Yes. When I first started drawing the comics... It was essentially informational. uh I thought like, Oh, this is fascinating stuff. Let me share it. This is pretty fun um i I crack up easily at disgusting stuff, so I would draw things about colonoscopies, erectile dysfunction, and just whatever made me laugh and then as i as I got more into this and wanted to make it more of a focus and also just learned more about writing uh for healthcare audiences. Um, I realized, like, I wanted to learn more about it myself and not have to rely on, like, Dr. So-and-so, can you please take a look at this or tell me where to find this? So I actually went back to school and got a master's degree in health communication. And so much of that was about public health and really focusing on behavior change and improving people's health. And that's where I made the switch to just going from essentially, hey, look at this medical fact. Isn't this kooky? Wow to trying to actually do something with the comics. Here's what you can do now that you have this knowledge. Because that was one thing they drilled into us, uh, I think from the very first week of the grad school, was the expression, knowledge alone does not affect behavior. So just because I told somebody a fact about why smoking is bad or why they should go get some test, just because they know it, they're not going to necessarily do it. You have to think more about the psychology behind it and the benefits the drawbacks all of that and so that's what i've been incorporating more in my work lately
0: in terms of um so obviously one of the huge benefits it seems to me of, of kind of presenting information like this and as you said like things that will actually help make that leap from information to action and understanding is is the use of humor and that kind of thing and I suppose, I mean, you've already said that you find you find sort of um, like humour in quite gross things. I mean, me too. Um, and I suppose I'm quite interested in, in your thoughts on sort of, I suppose, finding the humour in that stuff, but also in things that are, se- are really serious and can really impact people's lives and that kind of thing. And how you sort of, um, I suppose, deal with any anxiety about how you handle that in a humorous way.
7: It can be tough because I think of... Um heard somebody say once, gallows humor, you know, is for the people who are on the gallows. Like, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to make lots of silly jokes about some form of cancer that I don't have. Uh, I'm an outsider. I don't, it's not my place. And I wouldn't have the, I wouldn't even have the insight. So it's a tough one. I feel like with those, with really kind of delicate situations, or very, somber medical issues. Well, in those you it helps to find the humor in other aspects, maybe. So maybe not about the illness itself, but about the medical treatments around it, the staff around it. Or finding gentle ways to get humor. Maybe the humor is about somebody having unexpected tattoos and going through this experience, or working in an unusual job. That sort of thing. Like finding other ways to make it lighter to make it more relatable to make it funny but without yeah without making people feel bad and without without coming across as inauthentic and i think if i were collaborating with somebody who did have a specific condition then it would then it would be different then i i would feel okay drawing it knowing that it was expressing their words and just kind of translating the real experience onto the page but it's tough i've been called out Um, I've been called out before about saying just, "haha, look at this kooky disease I found! This is crazy! And somebody saying, Excuse me, I have- I have that condition! Like, it's not really something to laugh about. And I think that was probably the turning point for me getting away from just saying- Making comics that say, Wow, look at this ridiculous disease! That really humanized it to me, and I don't- I look back on some of my notes from that period of comics that I planned to do, and I cringe. I'm so glad that I never executed them. It's a
0: kind of, the world of medical comics is something I've just, i just wasn't familiar with until I came across you and your work, and I suppose what is, can you give me a sense of what that world is like, and what the changes have been, you know, in the sort of politically turbulent time that we've all been going through, but um, particularly mm. in America, but, Have there been changes in your approach and your work, that kind of thing? Or is there a more of a sense of urgency? You know, what kind of things have you noticed?
7: Well, the field itself, in my experience, it's been been wonderful. It's still very loose and new. There's room for... I still feel like there's room for anybody and their interests. So whenever I go to the yearly conference, I see clinicians, I see researchers, uh, public health people... I see cartoonists, um, I see patient activists who are maybe dealing with a condition themselves and being active around it. There's a lo- I see a lot more librarians now uh, looking into expanding the collection, medical librarians and any kind of librarian. There's a lot of media studies people as well who are analyzing uh, like comics for medical, for medical or health themes or just bodily themes. It almost feels like any way you can think of incorporating the body into comics, and maybe there's a care aspect to it too, that covers it. Like it feels like an enormous umbrella. And what's wonderful is everybody feels interested in everybody else's work too. It doesn't, I don't get the impression that somebody comes in with a new project and a new angle and everybody else rolls their eyes. No, they always feel welcome. There's so much cross-pollination. Um, the field has grown. So just within the field, I see more research being done, more papers being published. When I st- when I first started, it was frustrating because it was as though we all knew intuitively this could be a good thing, but we didn't have the evidence to back it up. And now we are getting so much more evidence, so many more publications. So that's from the inside, that's great. But, um, the influence of the current times, <laughs> uh, yeah, There's more. I, f- I feel like there's more, if not emphasis on activism, presence of it. People making comics to express, hey, look what happens when people don't have basic healthcare access. Uh, see what happens to these people when they have a condition that current medicine is not handling well. Or current politics is alienating them from this, so it affects them in this health aspect. A lot of the social determinants of health kick in from, um, yeah, just like not not just the body aspect, but finances and community and access to care. People are getting getting more revved up about that. It's you can't be neutral. Nothing about nothing about healthcare or medicine is neutral at all and it's I think more people are realizing that too which is good definitely do you think when it comes to I suppose
0: you've talked about kind of the the larger presence of kind of activism and that getting fired up which I think is really interesting and I suppose the impetus to put you know to put pen to paper and to draw something and to put your time into showcasing a particular you know thought or issue or something like that what's kind of getting you interested in making you want to draw at the moment any particular things and in general what is it that you tend to look for in an idea before you start seriously pursuing it
7: apart from the world being on fire at the moment um, so I recently finished working a temp job at a hospital two days a week I worked the front desk at um, in a cardiology center, and this is my first time working that role in healthcare. Previously, I'd been a web developer, I'd been a writer, I know doctors, I'd been to grad school, but I'd never worked that front line and that administrative level. And boy, was that an eye opener! Oh my god, I learned so much in just those six months of two days a week that I, I feel ashamed for not having known or appreciated before. Just these people are. These people are the first contact of when somebody is coming in, coming into the health into healthcare. They are the backbone of it. They they make it all go. They're the the bloodstream, the backbone, the everything. And yet, I they're not respected, they're not necessarily respected as much as they should be. They have so much expertise. They have so much insight. They keep the places going. And yet they're often maybe an afterthought when it comes to planning or to meeting or to training staff, things like that. Just that's something I feel very, just really, really activated about now is just how to empower and listen to and incorporate non-clinical staff in the healthcare industry. Cause they have so much to share. They have so much insight. I want to draw, I have some comics in mind about just barriers to healthcare that I saw because of that role that I hadn't fully appreciated before. Yeah, I don't feel I don't feel as though I specialize in anything specific, except for the fact that I make comics for adults. I don't tend to make I don't make comics for a pediatric audience. I make comics for adult patients. So there's that, but mostly it's just like, oh, Here's a funny thing about willies! Yeah! This is hilarious! Oh, man! Okay, maybe I need to share that with people! Or, or, oh boy, this may... Oh, I'm so angry about this thing! How do I express this anger through a comic and help other people learn and understand from it? Here's a condition that runs in my family. Hmm, let's think about that and make a... Let's make a comic about that, given that I'm kind of dwelling on it and picking at it like a scab for a while. It's hard because I look back and my track record has been patchy in a fun quilt kind of way. Like I just looked like that one just made me laugh. That one I was running out of time. So I asked a friend like, hey, what's a medical question you have? And it turned out to be fascinating. Like that one, I was frustrated. I do feel like a lot of it circles around understanding people and making them feel more heard and more seen in healthcare especially in healthcare, especially to clinicians and to other people who don't have that same condition. It's like getting across, you know, like this makes me, this condition makes me frustrated or makes me unhappy or makes it so I can't go out at night necessarily. And just trying to, I just, I just have this mental image of helping people hold hands, just helping people connect and realize like, oh, you know, regardless of they're going to change their life, just, oh, that's what it's like. Oh, I have a better understanding now. I think probably because the medical comics I've been, that have most impressed me have made me feel like that. It makes me, I walk away feeling like I understand somebody's situation better now. I feel like I could talk to them in conversation respectfully. I feel like I could advocate for them better in, in front of other people. I know what it's like, more of what it's like. To be that other person now. I'm so interested in seeing more visual, visual expression, visual expression, visual creativity in healthcare comics. Sometimes it can be a bit, it can be easy to fall back on just drawing pictures of people talking and pictures of people just going about their lives, giving their treatment. I feel like, especially with with just the cartooning aspect of it, the fact that you can really exaggerate or simplify, just stretch and contort and show the different emotions in absurd ways, it's a valuable tool.
0: We really encourage you to check out Cathy's medical comics and her other work on her website, metrokitty.com. You can also find her on Twitter, at metrokitty.
8: I started therapy again uh, after a brief period of a break <laughs> uh, and then came the break down uh, I started therapy again and I was so um, I, I felt really lucky that I could afford it because I couldn't when I was 16 and um, like when I was 16 my, so my and my dad um, my dad said he would pay for it and after seven years of therapy uh, my therapist said to me, Yeah, but how does it feel, you know, that you that you know your dad stopped paying after six months? And I was like, I did not know that. Turns out so she just had me for free for six and a half years, which I had no idea. And it, that's, and sometimes when you think about how lucky that is, and it's such an extreme level of luck, like I probably wouldn't be in this business, this country, this, would it be alive? I don't know, because that's, not a lot of people get that. And then for me to now need it again when I can sort of manage it, where I have friends all around me unable to even get on the waiting list to get a, um, uh, to get a therapist is, is really terrifying and it's kind of humbling uh, to be in this position. So for me it's a matter of being lucky enough to be able to afford it and still have integrity. <laughs> but there will come a time when I will have to do <sighs> adverts or some kind of, <laughs> like have I got to sell out. on you're gonna do it! Look at me on voiceover for a bank panel shows, yeah. laughing at Jimmy Carr, like
9: look <laughs> 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 me again. So <laughs> like, funny, you don't pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I could have needed that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yeah, I think what we've all really sensibly done is uh, choose a really lucrative and stable industry to work in. (laughs) That's really supportive. But it it is um, uh, today I spoke to somebody I work with and I said it'd be really good if we could guarantee um, that I would do one column a month because I would really like to rely on that £125 a month. That'll see me through. And and, uh, and she's like, yeah, that's a really good idea. I think you do need that stability. Um, And I was like, yeah, cash in. That's my groceries paid for, living the high life. but it, it is is—it is trying to find that stability as much as you can and find, even if it is the stable paycheck, or at least knowing you have to do this, this, and this. And um, the my friends and I, we have a, a group chat and our, um, our 2018 um, mantra is uh, boundaries, not bath bombs, because that's mm-hmm. the most important form of self-care. It's not about like the soothing and being like, I'm wearing a sheet mask. It's like saying no uh, to people and um, setting up boundaries and um, knowing that, uh, Turning something down because you have to look after yourself is the, the right decision, even though in the meantime it feels like um, losing out on a professional advancement or uh, all the money. Because um, I, uh, well, we were talking before the panel about how I went to a, a Sylvanian family's fashion show. Which is a, yeah. s- a story I have to. It's my favorite. <laughs> there oh, we go. Um, and uh, and uh, I did that, and then in the morning, and then I went to see a friend in the evening. Um, or like so, I was like, yeah, I can do that. I mean, I've got plans to see my friends, but I'll go and do that because that sounds really fun. Um, and I did two things in a day, and uh, that was three months ago, and I'm still in the crash period that came out of it. Um, and a sensible Rosie would have said no, but I was like, mm. no, I've got to do this. And it, it it's realizing, looking back, going, oh no, you do have to set those boundaries for yourself on what you can and and can't do, and that. Um, you know your your physical health is so important. <laughs> uh, I say that as uh, uh, speaking uh, as a disabled person, also to able able-bodied people who are always like, "Yeah, it doesn't matter. I'll just work late forever." And I just go, oh, "Look at me. I'm like <laughs> a warning from history. Don't do it. Go home." A lot of my uh, friends who um, I've
3: met who have long uh, long-term disabilities. Um, I wonder if we push ourselves more as if to make up for that society has deemed us lesser. So let's try and do more and almost make up for it. It's one of those, thi- those, all those things we have to unpack and the, those toxic things that we're stuck with. Uh, Cause I'm a bugger for doing that, mate. Yeah. Really do. As if I've got to prove it was all worth a damn, you know, being ill as a child and uh, being behind at school and my parents having to not work to look after me. It's like, well, I will make sure that I'm exceptional to make up for it. That's something that sort of haunts me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not healthy, all right. You know, I'm going to, you know, work myself into an early grave probably. But um, it feels like you want to, you have to do more in a way.
4: I completely agree. I've burnt myself several times. Uh but yeah, burnt myself out several times where I've like had to have words with my agents. Where I was um, with my agent, uh, telling him if he could help me get deadlines pushed back because I just said yes to everything because I didn't know if I'd work again. Um, and like like you, turn um, the fear of turning down things because if I say no now, they'll never offer me work in the future, what have you. Um, and sort of similar to similar to you, Rosie, like trying to put boundaries and. Uh, Create parameters where I can take care of myself as well as the work like it's not it doesn't have to be one or the other but I can do both but Realistically, how can I do both so that means? Incorporating rest days Um, if people want to meet up with me or meet in person or whatever Usually we will have a meeting locally to me where I don't have to take public transport. Um, I was really lucky for yeah, for quite a bit of my um, life, or starting in my career, where my mum was my primary carer. She was everything. She was my taxi driver. She was the one that got me up in the morning to all my courses and everything. And so I only started needing care four years ago and re- realising how difficult it is to navigate the care system um, and how... Um, ableist and backwards views like people in the social care system have towards disabled people especially like the idea of wanting to go out and wanting to try and find work but work that wasn't necessarily you know a bank or a nine-to-five job but like oh i i write it's like oh can't you do that from home it's like yes i can but then there are other days or I have to be out I need to be in rehearsals I'm having meetings in writers rooms or whatever so um, learning that like if I want to seriously pursue this treating the work that I do is a value um, and not letting people try and devalue it because I'm disabled um, as well as knowing that I have to take care of myself Mental health
0: is gaining a more prominent place in TV, film, comedy and radio. Yet barriers to inclusion and accurate sensitive representation are, as with so many health issues, still lacking. I spoke to stand-up comedian Laura Lex about the process of making comedy about her own mental health. My name is Laura Lex and I am a comedian. What we're talking about in this episode is health and mental health is something that you talk about a lot in your comedy. Could you talk to me a little bit about, I suppose first of all, why you think it's good meat for making people laugh, I guess. I think what's fun about it is uh,
1: it's watching people laugh when they didn't expect to. So the show I'm currently working on is a show about how I started trying for a baby and found myself medicated for depression and anxiety instead of pregnant. I don't think many people would sit down to that on paper and think, I bet I kill myself laughing. So what I like doing is saying, ah, you know all this stuff that we're getting better as a society about acknowledging? You don't even have to just acknowledge it. In this show, I'm going to stand in front of you, be one of these statistics that we retweet and you're going to have a good time with me because that's possible. Just because I have mental health issues doesn't mean that's all I am. We worked out that it really annoyed my dad if we spent the whole holiday in character as (laughs) two elderly northern women called Tara and Belle. So we did, the whole holiday, we wandered round talking like this at every market we went to, going, oh, Tara, would you like one of these snap-on bracelets, love? They're lovely, aren't they? Look at this. Oh, Beryl, I would, but our Dave will kill me. pretty confident we were both married to Dave. I loved it. And last year, we got to recreate the whole thing, right? Now, the reason we'd gone on holiday was um, a couple of years ago, I got a real Dave called Tom, right? And he's great. I love him. He's real. He's my favourite thing, right? And he... I can't, words can't describe how much I love this man. He's my passion in life, right? And the other thing I love is babies. I fucking love babies, right? So I was like, okay, I'll get my real Dave. I'll get... Uh, and I'll get his wet bits and I'll put them next to my wet bits (laughs) and uh, we'll make the baby and then my life will be great, right? So we decided to do that and we started trying and we got three months in and I was medicated for generalised anxiety disorder and chronic depression. (laughs) Turns a corner, doesn't it? (laughs) What I've done though to make sure that you know it's okay to laugh I've made some signs.
7: (laughs) (laughs) okay cool but it's
1: my depression and I'll laugh about it if I want to all right yeah so uh, what happened was we started trying for a baby and it turns out my husband can't have kids because of my personality
0: (laughs) is this is this kind of material something you've worked with before this show or is this a kind of a new a departure this is a pretty new departure I've often joked about
1: difficult subjects. I've not gone quite so deep into mental health before Um, and in particular one of the things I really wanted to challenge myself with this was to write jokes about antidepressants because when I started taking antidepressants I didn't tell a soul. (laughs) I was very scared that people would know or that people would not think I was... Uh, capable of writing funny stuff or saying funny stuff or reacting quickly. I was scared I'd be the, the scary story that they tell you that these drugs do to your brain. You know, they're like, they make you zombified. Um, and so I didn't tell anyone. And then what I want to do with this show is go, do you know what? They're great. And the more we understand what they are instead of believing these ridiculous stories about them, the better it will be for people that need them. We got help. We didn't have a baby. I got depression instead. And in fairness, it was a very similar year. (laughs) Turns out depression and pregnancy, very similar. You don't start showing for the first four months and uh, you really don't want to be friends with the sort of people that try and drink through it. cool, finding your line. This is good, isn't it? Um, honestly, my depression is 22 months old now and you really can't tell the difference between me and my new mum, friends. We're, we're all over tired. We've all got inexplicable stains on our clothes and none of us are as much fun at parties anymore. I just go to quieter support groups. Same padded play area, though.
0: What has um reaction been in general, apart from people laughing. And as you say, being surprised maybe (laughs) about that. But what has reaction been like?
1: Reactions made me very emotional actually. Uh, I've liked watching the average person just sit and laugh. And then I've liked people coming up to me after the show and saying, oh my God, I didn't know I could sit and laugh at the situation I'm in like that. I've got mental health issues too. And then I've liked people that have messaged me afterwards and gone, hey, I didn't know what to say after the show, but thank you so much for talking about this. Um, one person that messaged me and said, I did, didn't really realise how low I felt until I saw that show and i been since been to the doctor and got help and I cried for about an hour after I got that message. Uh So that's been amazing, Uh, on top of the laughter, which the laughter is what I live for, seeing people use it for something else because a lot of people have said to me is this show good therapy and I've been sat there going no 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 I had loads of actual therapy this show is hard work it's really hard laying yourself bare every hour and and putting it all out there and waiting for it to be judged because I've turned it into something that people are allowed to judge you know it's an artwork it is to be judged but it's hard so but the fact that it might prompt other people to have a think and
0: to accept that maybe they're not as happy as they could be that's been amazing that's really interesting that that question about whether it's that in itself is therapy versus you actually having been to therapy and that kind of thing and it being a hard thing to use all those tools and all that experience as well were there any aspects of writing the show Mm that you maybe found unexpectedly helpful or or unexpectedly difficult I mean it's obviously a difficult thing to have to scratch to make it funny but
1: I think in order to write the show and in order to write jokes about this I think in some ways I've detached the contents of the show from me. And I don't mean that everything that's in the show isn't true or that I don't believe what's in the show. But I think I have found that in order to do it, I can't feel it every time I say it. It, uh, I'm so sorry if this is just sounding like nonsense. Uh, It's all true. It is all me. It is all something I stand by until my dying breath but what I'm learning with these previews is that in order to have the strength myself to keep standing up and reliving this it is now a show instead of me mining myself every
0: time I think (laughs) People are discussing obviously mental health a lot more than they used to which is a wonderful thing it is yeah it's it's a really wonderful thing is there in your sort of from your perspective as a comedian and as a performer have there been I don't know what's that what's that process been like to watch from from where you are I think it's been great,
1: it's really great. For me, Like, it was a really big thing to put my hand up and say this had all happened to me and this was the route I'd gone down for help because for a really long time I was scared to say anything and I didn't. And then after I did, one of the best things was people not caring. And I that sounds counterintuitive and I don't mean to say that people wouldn't have cared if I'd needed their help, but Oh, what bliss it is to admit to this stuff and then to turn up to most people and have them not want to talk to you about it. And to know that your friends will and your loved ones will, but that every conversation you ever have with every stranger or person that's Facebook friends with you isn't going to need to know this about you all the time. Um, That's bliss. I think also... Once I said quite publicly, you know, this has happened to me and this is how I dealt with it, lots of people got in touch privately and said, oh, me too, or oh, I'm having CBT, or oh, I'm on antidepressants as well. And so seeing the colour of people that are in this with me um, and seeing the broad spectrum of what people dealing with this are doing and behaving like and being like and talking like and thinking like is magical because you start to realize that mental health problems and depression and anxiety even people in them do not realize how varied and how how many different people can have them and i i i think that's the buzzword isn't it with mental health is going anybody can have mental health problems mental health problems don't necessarily look like you expect and not only is that true the breadth to which that is true is incredible i think that's something i want to do with this show is i would like people to be laughing at someone with mental health issues like I almost think that's funny that the buzzword for my show is going to be I laughed at someone with a mental illness today because you did and you can because I have got a mental illness but I'm funny so laugh at me like <laughs> treat me like anybody else be horrible to me if you don't like me you don't have to treat me a certain way because of it it's fine I tried. I tried really hard. I tried therapy. Um, oh, technically now, though, I see my second therapist because my first one got signed off with stress. <laughs> Which I think means I won. <laughs> lots of people have been asking me, is this is this show good therapy? No! No! Wheeling around my innermost problems and uh, asking people to judge them. It's not therapy, I had lots of real therapy and I also took antidepressants that's quite a contentious subject um, but statistically, you know, people in here will be on antidepressants. You know I, I won't ask you to cheer if you are because you might not be able to yet <laughs> still levelling me out at the moment you know?
8: <laughs>
1: I think antidepressants saved my life, if I'm perfectly honest with you. I wouldn't have survived that gap between knowing I needed help and getting therapy. The wait list was too long. Thanks, hadn't you? I, I wouldn't have got there. Antidepressants were the only thing that kept me on this planet and now that that's happened, I want to use comedy to lift the lid on antidepressants, you know? But it's hard, because first you have to push it down and click it round. <laughs> You'll keep the kids out of it, won't you? You don't want those fuckers cheering up.
8: <laughs>
1: I, um, it's a weird thing being on them, actually, because uh, when you tell people that you're on antidepressants, you have two very distinct conversations, right? So what happens is I go, oh, hello, I'm on antidepressants, which is exhibit one in why I'm not fun at parties anymore. I, uh, hello, I'm on antidepressants. And one type of person will go, oh, good for you, but good for you taking antidepressants, because if you broke your leg, you'd sort that, wouldn't you? So just because you've broken your brain. What a good thing that you've got help. Well done, sweetheart. And patronising, but all right, fine. And then there's another band of people that you go, oh yeah, I'm on antidepressants. And they go, oh darling, no, you don't want to be on antidepressants, darling. Antidepressants don't make you happy, sweetheart. They're just chemicals. It can't make you really happy. Antidepressants just make you fat and sleepy. Oh, fat and sleepy, is it, Cheryl? Because it's always fucking Cheryl. <laughs> Fat and sleepy, is it, Cheryl? Right. I don't know if you know much about depression, Cheryl, but I was already both of those things. <laughs> you're just describing the disease people want them to be perfect these pills and they're fucking heck they're not perfect but what cure is you know the the side effects people worry about with depression are so similar to the disease that like why would you turn down the help you're mad cheryl if you take it back to the broken leg analogy have you ever met anybody that broke their leg wore a cast for four days and then after a while took it off going do you know what no the cast was just making it too difficult to walk it's bonkers right you think yeah Cheryl put on weight yeah if I'm honest with you babe I did put on a little bit of weight I put on about two and a half stone if I'm honest with you Cheryl but do you know what? in hindsight it was better than the ten and a half stone I would have lost as I slowly decayed after the funeral
0: <laughs> is there any um, have there been any pieces of work I suppose particularly comedy but you know whatever um, that you found particularly sort of I suppose, good that are talking about this kind of thing as well? So other other people's work?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think... I can't think of any off the top of my head and that's awful because I undoubtedly have seen them. For the last year or so since I started writing this show, I've very consciously not watched anything that I was worried would influence me to either be insecure about my own work off the back of seeing theirs or would make me subconsciously try and replicate um I know that there are comedians out there like Juliet Burton does some wonderful work about mental health um situations uh, and she's an ambassador for a couple of charities I think she's does absolutely brilliant things and there has been a real turn recently of comedy addressing heavier subjects
0: um from a sort of um I suppose like a more practical perspective has sort of scheduling and running and putting this show on been the same as any other one I I don't I don't necessarily mean in terms of like the the personal cost or not of performing it but in terms of you know pitching it or do you think that the climate is right for it?
1: I think the climate's right for it. Actually, what I've noticed about having a show that is on very strongly on a theme is pitching it and asking people to be interested in it has been far easier than in previous years where I've just been saying it's a funny show. Um, I think people like an angle and people are ready to learn and understand about issues that they didn't know about before and that's really lovely that's been wonderful um and i've i've been scared to do this like you know edinburgh is one thing if you, i don't know if you know much about the edinburgh festival but you you turn up there and people are expecting a narrative and a story and a heavy issue and a this and a that and a blah 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 that is edinburgh uh one of the interesting things about putting an edinburgh show together is the previews that you do where you just go around very normal pubs And they think they're getting a comedy night and you turn up with an Edinburgh show, which is comedy, but it's a different style of comedy. So I've been bricking it before some of those thinking, oh, these dads in their 50s don't want to hear about my mental health issues. And then watching them laughing at it and going, no, girl, don't don't sell yourself short on the strength of your jokes. Like you've done this and it's good. So don't back out on it now.
0: Laura Lex will be performing her show Trying at the 2018 Edinburgh Festival. For details about the run and all her upcoming shows check out lauralex.co.uk or find her on Twitter at Laura Lex. So mental health in storytelling is something that we've talked to a few people about so it's formed part of our panel discussion
9: Yep.
0: several of our Interviews have touched on it. Mm-hmm. What are your, what were your initial thoughts thinking about this part,
2: uh, specifically mental health in fiction? Mm-hmm. Um, what really struck me when we held our live event in London last month with regards to mental health was um, how few positive depictions there are of mental health in fiction, um, and I'll, uh, well, I'm i sure we'll pick it up with regards to physical health later as well. But anything long standing. Mm-hmm that isn't curable Um, fiction doesn't really currently have a really great way of accurately representing Um, I think it looks too commonly uh, mental health um, as a plot line it is either curable or it is fatal or it is um, debilitating to such an extent that the character becomes lesser because of it Uh, And what I really want to see more of are more realistic representations of mental health and fiction, which are the strong, enduring characters who potentially and and commonly live with mental health problems for all of their lives. And that doesn't form the majority of them or even the, I don't know, the the basis of them. It needs to be an add-on as a hair colour is and um, it really doesn't happen
0: enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder, I sort of hope that, obviously we'll talk about this stuff more now anyway, but I also think with the rise of things like podcasts, I think it's um become something that's being discussed in a lot of stand-up, a lot of sitcoms as well, that kind of thing. It's becoming... Something that people are dealing with it seems to me more easily in lots of forms. And I hope that means that people who maybe aren't themselves familiar with it or haven't um, suffered from mental illness themselves will all start to demand a bit more a bit more um, rigor and realism mm-hmm. from those depictions rather than leaving it to the people who go this is my experience and it should be like this I think we will all hopefully start to recognize Look, no I even though this might not be my experience I do know from having listened to this person and spoken to these people and knowing and loving these people that this is something that people do live with and and it's the living with it that is where the stories are
2: absolutely i would like to pick out a couple of random tv examples with regards to mental health because i do think we're getting better um but things like my mad fat diary Mm -hmm. i don't think isn't problematic i don't think it's um problem for you by any stretch um but ray is cool and has friends and does things and, and her mental illness regardless of the name of the show um whilst it is a part of her her friends and her, her tastes and her family life are much more important. And the show is more about teaching the viewer to see that than it is about educating about um or, or depicting things about about mental health, which I really like. And then uh, more recently, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I think, has taken on mental health in a completely different way. I don't think, from my perspective, but who am I to say, it's entirely stayed on a... um an accurate representation I think it sometimes uh, had to bow to the format a little bit Um, but I think that the more perspectives basically so uh, I watched Hannah Gadsby's um, Nanette for the second time the night before last and uh, I'm referring to her um, Picasso bit about there not just being you know cubism is important even though he was a misogynist knobhead um technical term uh, thats term That's the term that the more perspectives there are, the better. and if we go from having zero mental health perspectives in fiction to having a couple of good ones and a couple of shit ones, then we're moving in the right direction, and the more people who get involved in that, the more the people who refine that, the better it's going to be.
0: Researching this episode has highlighted again and again how much there is to learn. Each person's experience of health is shaped by their own body, their own mind and the experiences and attitudes of those around them. The only way we have of combating our own limitations is to listen and to learn. If we're seeking to advocate better, we must always be making way for people's own stories. If you are a storyteller of any kind, we would love to hear from you. What kind of stories should we all be hearing? Until then, thank you for listening to our thoughts, our conversations and our stories. We'll be back next month with our next episode, Politics. Story Etc. was produced and presented by Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill-Marson, who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Catherine Jakeways, Cathy Leamy and Laura Lex. Our live show panellists were Georgie Morell, Rosie Fletcher, Matilda Ibini, and Sophie Hagen. Story Etc. is an audio scribble production. Thanks for listening.